Excellent. An ale for me. And for my officers. In fact, ales for everyone. Turn backwards. With Rick and Rick and Will and Gemma. Oh, yes. <clears throat> Hello, welcome to another episode of Ten Backward, the UK-based podcast all about Star Trek. Uh, I am Rick Everson, and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts Rick Palmer. Hello. Gemma Turland. Hi. And Will Turland. Greeting. Uh, So today's episode, we are talking, uh, again, this is the second time we've got to do this, we're talking with a guy who's actually in Star Trek, um, which is pretty exciting. Bill Blair, known as the alien actor, uh, has uh, a new, well. He's, he's he's as you'll find out shortly. He's literally got a world record in playing mm-hmm. loads of aliens, and a number of them have been on Star Trek. He's been on Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, and he was kind enough to give us a lot of his time and his stories uh, when we had a chat with him. So, without further ado, we'll go straight to that. This is this is us talking to Bill Blair. Okay, we're here with Bill Blair, also known as the alien actor, who has played, in fact, a record-breaking amount of uh, alien in prosthetics across film and TV. Uh, So, hi, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us today. Very excited to have a chance to talk to you. It's always great to talk to people across the pond. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's brilliant. so yeah, we uh, obviously we're a Star Trek podcast, and you've done a number of roles on on Trek, but uh, you've also done various other bits. Um, actually, could we start? Um, my first question, I think, because the uh, that record, that Guinness World Record, you've got for is it most most parts in in prosthetics? It's a very long title. Uh, it's <laughs> called most special effect makeup characters portrayed in a career. So that covers TV, film, movies, live shows, stage, any place where it's basically publicly seen and or recorded. Wow. And just recently I was approached by the Guinness World Record people. They want to update that. So they're hoping that I'll uh, put together again all the ones since 2011 when the record was established. And so we can add to that and uh, get in one of the books coming up in the next year or two. Fantastic. Fantastic. So uh, did did, did the Guinness World Records people, did they call you up or did you like have a count ready where you thinking I'm going to break this record? (laughs) Um, Actually, as I said, I actually established the record. There was no record. Mm. I just had people that I worked with and were associates that just said, how many have you done? You've had to do more than anyone ever. And finally, after a number of years, I kind of took that to heart and started looking online, you know, thanks to the Internet those days. And I looked up Bella Lugosi and Lon Chaney and Ron Chapman and all sorts of other people, Doug Jones. And it's just mm-hmm. like I couldn't find anything. I mean, it was just all spread out throughout the Internet of who had done what. So I found the Guinness World Record webpage. And they had that little button on there, as you folks say over there, they said, submit an inquiry. And uh, so I wrote to them and just asked if they had anything on people in special effects makeup, basically. And it was very quickly after that, 
uh, within a week or so, I guess, that they wrote back to me and said, no, we've looked at your website. We don't have anything like this in our records. Would you please submit? At which point I said, okay, how? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll get back to you with that in about maybe six weeks or so, because it was going to be a new category. They had to do all the legal stuff. This was totally unprecedented to them. So while they were working on their end, I started just going through everything. And fortunately, I'm somebody that keeps a lot of records, a lot of my history. And I found a lot of my work records from all the days that I worked clear back into the early 80s, up through the 80s, into the 90s, especially the stuff that started in the um, early 90s with Babylon 5, Alien Nation, followed by Star Trek. And uh, eventually I just decided the best way to organize this was on a spreadsheet. And lo and behold, by the time I was done, I had well over 400 lines on that spreadsheet of different characters that I played. Then I started eliminating the duplicates. And that slowly got down into the 300s and the 200s. And then I sent something to eventually after having... At this point, this was like almost four years down the road now, and I had Guinness World Records information, and they wanted not only just dates of when it was shot, when it was aired, what the episode was, series and or feature film or project, Uh, obviously the character, where the character appeared, what scene I even took it one step farther than that, just back in those days, taking it off of either videotape or DVD and gave them a rough time code as to where the scene was. Then on top of that, of course, they wanted all that in um, referenced on video DVD that had to be less than an hour. So that was an interesting editing part for me to work with. And then they also wanted everything in a hard print, no less than basically five by seven. So I went through a lot of ink and a lot of photo paper on the printer and (laughs) and printing out the 202 that were the final number in 2011. I printed out 202 five by seven images, put it all into a notebook. I took little post-it arrows and stuck it right on the photo as to which character I was in each one of those photos. And then I compiled a DVD, all the scenes, all 202 scenes, and I compressed that down into less than one hour for them to review. I sent my first one in, and on my spreadsheet, I had left some of my human characters that I had played they just wrote back to me very quickly and said, just please eliminate all the human characters from your list. So that's what brought it down from two, the mid 200s down to the 202. I sent that back in. Then the final kicker was they needed at least two letters of authentication from people that could say, yes, this was him that knew me and saw me do all of these characters. <laughs> Well, this whole thing spanned over about 15 years worth of work. There was no one or two people over that span that had done the makeup on me, had been an assistant director or somebody on set that could say, yes, that was him in that character. So in the end, 
I ended up not submitting two letters, but I think 12 or 13. And with each of those letters, uh, I had given these people the spreadsheet and I gave it an extra column that said, if you recognize this character, please check it off. So by the time we got all their letters back, I knew that each character had been checked off no less than twice. Yeah. Wow. And I put that in each letter and sent that all into them. And within a week, they wrote back and said, it's done. You're in, basically. Yeah. <laughs> just as easy as that. <laughs> <laughs> Four years and, you know, just a few correspondence back and forth and hours and hours. I had two friends that helped me be a second set of eyes and a third set of eyes going through all my spreadsheets, making sure I hadn't missed something, duplicated something, made a typo um, so that everything. And so that really helped a lot having friends that understood what I was trying to do and uh, just worked with whatever I was doing, not saying, Oh, you should do it this way or that way. Cause it was just like, no, this is the way Guinness records wants it. I have to work mm -hmm. with this. Right. And it was great. And uh, so now I've reached that point where they've asked me to 10 years later or so to update that for them. We'll see what happens. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I'll have another whole big ceremony down on Hollywood Boulevard at the Guinness World Record Museum there like I did back in 2011. And, and, mm -hmm. and everybody will be invited this time. Fantastic. I actually had one gal that uh, came over for uh, an award that I received in 2013 or 14 2013 um she actually came all the way over from england for the ceremony um she lives up in milton Keynes. Mm -hmm. we've known her for a very long time we first met back in 2001 10 years prior to that um i had some people you know for the guinness thing come in from uh, out of california uh, it was a really good turnout. If anybody wants to see that, um, I'll just mention it now. Uh, my website is alienactor.com. And in the lower left, there is a link to a video that was put together from the Guinness World Record presentation. Ah. Oh, great. Is, I, I was wondering, is there is there anyone who is sort of uh, you know, who is sort of coming up close to number two. Is there anyone you're worried about who, who's going to steal that title <laughs> from you? Um, if there was any one or two people, um, there is a gentleman who uh, worked on Star Trek and Babylon 5 as well. Mm. But he's already said he doesn't have any of the records of what he did. So he has mm. no clue as to how many he did. Wouldn't even be able to go back and find out about it. Uh, but I know he did quite a number as well. Um, Doug Jones, of course, has done hundreds uh, of different yeah. characters here and there. Uh, but as he and I have talked, uh, a vast majority of the characters he did were not focused just on the special effects makeup. But he has obviously a lot of well-known characters like right now with Star Trek Discovery and the feature film The Shape of Water. He's coming out again uh, this next month on uh what is it uh paramount no disney plus with hocus pocus 2 where he reprises his role of billy wonderful mm -hmm. act wonderful wonderful person i'm honored to know him um but he even says no i don't even come close to you <laughs> <laughs> bill um 
earlier on you mentioned uh actors like Bella Lugosi and Lon Chaney I I'm curious do you feel like looking back you you have an you had an aptitude for for the work where you wear prosthetics or was it something that you had to adapt to um well I always liked Halloween there's no question um I'd always Same here. Been like, like, <laughs> but no I'd actually not really worn you know glued on things to my face, just usually masks, uh, pullover things. Uh, it wasn't actually where it came from. And people could see part of this story on my website. I was working on a movie, Demolition Man. <gasps> and I had the opportunity <laughs> to meet a makeup artist by the name of Richard Snell, who had worked on Star Trek and currently was working on Alienation. He was actually looking for a teaching model and somebody that had good bone structure, good skin tone, all the things that you know a makeup artist looks for to make their job easier. And I typically have that long, narrow, oval type face and very strong cheekbones, jawline. Uh, he even came up at that one point, just like grandma would to you when you were a kid and go, oh, hi there. She wants to <laughs> He said, would you like to work with us? So I said, okay, sounds like fun. Uh, a couple of weeks after working with him, I got a phone call from a casting service that said, somebody's asked if you would be willing to work on Alien Nation and prosthetics. I said, sure. I had kind of an idea at that point where it came from. And that's really where it all started. Uh, I've, you know, I'd done some special effects things early on with squibs and blood and that, but uh, even in early 19, mid 1980s, mid 1980s, I did uh, my first actual attempt professionally of myself where I turned myself into uh, Mander Spot. Ah, cool. Doing <laughs> <laughs> a live stage show down in Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. and, I, and they brought the costume for Spock to, uh, to the set, uh, the project we were working on in Dallas. I said, there's no way I'm wearing those elf ears. <laughs> those are not Vulcan ears. So fortunately, there was a makeup studio not too far up the street. I had about an hour until showtime. I ran up there, got some nose and scar putty and some little white fibrous material and a lot of spirit gum. And um, came back and made a compound out of the putty and the fibrous material that I knew would give it texture and not just look like a smooth piece of plastic. And I just lathered on the spirit gum. It was the one thing I knew I could at least get it to stick with. I didn't know about the other adhesives or anything like that at that point. And I knew it wouldn't just really stick on its own. It would end up sweating off. Mm -hmm. So that was my, and it worked real well. As a matter of fact, at the end of the, of the uh, skit, uh, we all walk out into the audience and it was on well enough. People were actually pinching and tweaking my ears to see if they were real. Whoa, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it was. I Of course, I didn't give away a secret. <laughs> 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 and later on in my career, actually, somebody offered me $10,000, $15,000, whatever it was, if I would have my ears bobbed like Spock. Oh, and I said, why don't you put it back? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, 
that was that was some of my first times. And then once I got onto Alien Nation, it was really just like a word of mouth thing. I got another call from this casting service asking if I would be interested in working on Babylon 5. At that point, that was just what we called the pullover heads. Because um, I was a new kid on the block for that show. And after about two episodes, maybe three, uh, we came to the episode TKO. And they brought me in extra early and said, okay, we're going to actually glue stuff on you this time. I said, that's fine. I've done it before. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. And um, I got a really nice close-up in that, in that episode, Ringside. And uh, everything, again, everything just blossomed from there. I interviewed for Star Trek Next Generation a half a dozen times for different roles. Everything from uh, Romulans uh, to photo doubling for Brent Spiner. And never got picked once. Uh, so, lo and behold, uh, I don't know how far down the road. It was, but I got a call from casting again one night late. It was about 10, 1030 at night. And they wanted to know if I was still available the next day. I said, yes. They said, well, I just had a Klingon on Deep Space Nine cancel on me. And you're the right size. I'm not even going to call them. I'm just going to send you in their place so they can see what you can do. And that my first episode on Deep Space Nine was the House of Pork, uh, playing a member of the Klingon High Council. It was a lot of fun. And not only the makeup department, but the wardrobe department also, um, I don't want to say fell in love with me, but they liked my work and uh, I could make their job easier. The assistant director who does most of the hiring uh, really liked what I did and he kept bringing me back. And that's why I ended up working on Deep Space Nine so much. And I, I just change characters on that show all the time with what we call the Westmore aliens. They don't have a specific race name. But as Michael Westmore and everybody was saying, is that simply uh, you can't have a space station, which is like a wave station, which is like an airport, and only have two or three species walking around in there. Mm. It can't just be Cardassians, Klingons, and Ferengi, for example. You've got to have a whole array of people coming from different parts of the galaxy. So that's why you would see all these different alien races that were never referred to by any race name. They would just appear. I had two or three that um, I played more than one time uh, during the series. Uh, obviously, I played Klingons, Cardassians, Jem'Hadar uh, quite often. Uh, and there was one episode. This is a fun story. One episode and one episode only, I appear in Deep Space Nine as a Starfleet crew member. Out of makeup. <laughs> it's very difficult to spot, but it's during that four episode uh, series, I believe it was season five, uh, included the episode Rocks and Shoals, where Cisco and Dax and uh, Garrick and Nog was even in there, where uh, they'd taken and stolen the Jemadar ship to go back to their home world and they end up crashing in the. Um, in the lake, which was actually nothing more than a body of water at the bottom of a uh, sand and rock pit in north of Los Angeles. And it was 105 degrees out that day mm -hmm. there. And Klingons and Cardassians and Jemadars. Oh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> but uh, one day we were doing a, a scene and they 
director and the assistant director, I guess, were talking. I just slightly overheard. They said, we need another crewman for tomorrow. But understand on Star Trek, even for all the background, everything was interviewed. Every character was custom fitted for their for their outfit. And these crewmen on this stolen ship were not going to survive. And they did not want to burn or waste one of their regular people that could never be seen again in the show. Mm -hmm. So the assistant director, whoever it was, turned to the director and just said, well, why don't we use Bill? We'll never see him again. (laughs) (laughs) This is always hidden. (laughs) So I was like, okay, why not? So the one time where I actually got to be a human character, whereas on Babylon 5, I switched between Bridge and Crewman, Earth Force characters, uh, all the time with Minbari and Narns and everybody else. So each production has its own set of rules and guidelines to how they do things. Um, but yeah, that's where you take Mark Allen Shepard. He played the one character all the way through Deep Space Nine. But do you know the little secret backstory to that character? Uh, Morn, isn't it? Um, so was was he based on Norm from Cheers? It was it was based off the character from Shoes, yeah. yes. There's that going on there. What I'm referring to is the fact that, like me, one time you saw me out of makeup, but you wouldn't know it was me. Mm. There was an episode in Deep Space Nine entitled Who Mourns for Mourn? Yes. There is a scene where there's a whole bunch of us gathering around in quarks at the end of the bar. And Quark walks up and puts his arm around a gentleman and walks him over and sits him in Morn's chair at the end of the bar and says, always keep this chair warm. The gentleman he is sitting down there is Mark Allen Shepard. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Very nice. <laughs> uh, brilliant. If you ever get a chance to talk to Mark, he's got a great story, too, about how uh, Michael Westmore and Deep Space Nine picked him to play the character of Morn and how that transpired. It's a very interesting story. So if you're talking to him, make sure to ask him that question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyways, going mm-hmm. back, that's that's a whole long story about where I first started the first time. No, it wasn't the fact that I'd seen Frankenstein movies with you know Lon Chaney and uh, Bela Lugosi doing Dracula and all these types of things. It was uh, it was just the way it, it kind of evolved for me. I think the most special effect makeup I had done prior to that was in Chicago in the very early 1980s. A photographer, uh, I had just gotten into the side of entertainment of modeling and acting. And this photographer wanted to do a Dracula thing. And I had worked with him before, so he called me up. And he had a makeup artist there and everything. We uh, we did a nice little... Uh, Dracula thing. And so that was a really one of my very first professional makeups having been done on me. But we didn't use any prosthetics. It was just like with Christopher Lee or anybody, just all my own facial features, just a few different lines and shadows and putting the widow's peak, you know, hairline in with a pencil, things like that. Ah, And my own hair didn't even have to take a week for me. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you no, you carry on. Uh, no, please. I can come back to my story. You go ahead. Is there any um, any depictions of aliens that you have any particular affection for, 
or um, any that you enjoyed going back to or any that you particularly never wanted to go back to? <laughs> okay, in other words, can I go from one end, of, uh, one end of the spectrum to the other with what I like the most and really enjoyed for those that if I never see that alien again, I wouldn't care? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> we'll start with Star Trek. I identify and really enjoy playing a Klingon because no matter what incarnation of Klingon, whether it's the green faced original series that um, I can't say his name right now, uh, the very first uh, Klingon that we see. Cool. Um, oh, do you know his name's gone? <laughs> yeah, it'll probably pop up in, in very shortly when neither of us expected. Um, <laughs> But every once in a while, even my makeup artist and I will do a live makeup demonstration at a convention. We will reenact the scene that that gentleman and Fred Phillips, the makeup artist for the original series, had when he first walks into uh, the makeup room. And they basically together decide what a Klingon is going to look like based mm -hmm. on the attitude of the Klingon that this actor uh, would, would know. All I can think of right now is... You know, they brought him and Michael Ansara and uh, Bill Campbell back and another episode of Deep Space Nine all together. Um, and I don't know why I can't say the gentleman's name right now. He was in John Dallas. Colicos. Star it's John Colicos. Huh? Thank you. Yes, John. Um, anyways, yeah, he was the first Klingon. And no matter whether they look like that or they evolved to what Worf looked like, to what they look like in the movies now, and and even in uh, the early parts of uh, Star Trek Discovery, if you say Klingon, everybody knows what their personality is. Everybody knows what they stand for and how they've evolved. Uh, so that becomes a very favorite character for me to play. Uh, I'm not crazy about the long hair and all that. I understand you girls want not to have long hair all the time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, that the Klingon hair, I'll tell you, I understand why a lot of times Michael wanted to have Worf's hair pulled back in a ponytail. Um, the least favorite, believe it or not, is not the Borg. The Borg is the hottest I ever had to wear. Uh -huh. uh, six hours in that, and they're taking the suit off of me, and I'm literally pouring sweat out of the boots of the costume. I wore that for two days on a project and uh, was not part of actually the Star Trek series, but was part of the Borg Invasion 4D project. And I worked two days on that project as a Borg, and I lost seven pounds of water weight just in those two days. The stage, floor, the stage floor was 105 degrees where we were working with steam, nitrogen, and atmospheric smoke, as well as all the set lights. Um, there was a character who was one of the Westmore aliens. We nicknamed it Greenhorn. I was one of probably only two people that could fit into that mask. It was not a glue on. It literally pulled on over the head and was so tight. My nose did this all day long. <laughs> it was just that much. It was, it was actually designed for a female, but they really needed a male body in it once in a while too. So that's, that's probably the one, I mean, and the costume was extremely tight too. So again, uh, I, th I think I had to wear that three, maybe four times during the entire run 
And every time they said, oh, you're going to be the greenhorn, I just cringed and said, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I look like W.C. Fields at the end of the day without the alcohol. <laughs> it, was really, oh, it was painful. So, uh, on Babylon 5, the Pacmara, very uh, big, very large, yeah. with the tentacles, yeah. uh, was not my favorite to be in, actually. Uh, the costume was very heavy. There was always this giant um, pillow-type neck piece that we had to put around to support, to look like the big shoulders and everything. It was all carpet-type fabric, very heavy, not as heavy as carpet, mind you, but if you looked at the Pac-Man, it always looked like there was just these, and it was layers and layers of of these fabrics. Mm. And the head was very heavy. We had a couple of, of times, well, more than a couple of times, that we wore what were called the uh, animatronic head, or um, they, what they were is they'd taken like a remote control car and gutted the inside of these cars and took all the gears and everything and mounted them inside the head. And then somebody was off stage with the control and the joysticks and they could make the cheeks move. They could make the tentacles move, uh, whatever they wanted, wherever they had a gear, something hooked up, they could make the face animate. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that was actually a little bit dangerous because there was no protection uh, we couldn't fit a pair of goggles over my eyes inside of that. It was so snug with everything in it. So some of those gears, uh, if you can imagine little gears whirring around inside your head uh, oh when it's operating, and they're literally maybe a quarter to a half inch away from your eyeball, from your eyelid. Jeez. And I'd have my eyes open when they weren't running it. I'd have my eyes open just long enough to know where I was looking because there'd be a couple of pinholes right inside the bridge of my nose where I could see daylight. Mm -hmm. I was lucky I could see shapes. So I at least know I was standing in the right direction. There was one episode where we had to do this and we had to turn and walk away, which meant my back was to camera. Well, out of the back of the head is where the battery pack for all the animatronics was connected. So, buddy of mine at the time playing another alien character and I worked out a little dosi -si do dance step so that when I turned with my back to camera he fell right in behind me so he would block the camera's view of my back and then we'd walk <laughs> and exit and they gave me all my own little rehearsal so I could count off the number of steps because we had to turn right at the end of the hallway well during one of the takes apparently I didn't count right and I walked directly into the wall <laughs> so I I, um, I apologized they made sure I was okay we went back, we shot it again I did it perfectly <laughs> as we said, everybody gets one that was mine <laughs> uh, my favorite uh, my favorite alien makeup on Babylon 5 was the Narn mm. it was a full pull over helmet and then the face piece would glue on in the front so I would be completely encased in it but it allowed so much facial expression and so much movement this is this is why the character Jakar could be so emotional in that makeup and 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 so uh such a wide range of emotions 
to boot. I mean, from anger and hatred and despise to true caring and loving and understanding. Uh, and even one time I actually got to photo double uh, one day, the aged Jakar. They put me in his makeup um, and just built my shoulders up a little bit so I looked as heavy as he does. Uh, but they used me in a lot of different ways on Babylon 5 as well. The one on Babylon 5 I relate to the most is the Minbari. Mm. They had the forecast, the religious, the worker, the, war the warrior, the worker, religious, and then, of course, there was the rangers. Mm -hmm. Four of them one time or another. Little side note, I actually paid, played the Pac Marana in training for a ranger in that one episode, Learning Curve. <laughs> oh, wow. Cool. So I, they had me everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Not on, not on Deep Space Nine or Star Trek so much, but on Babylon 5, there were actually more than a couple of days where I would go in at like 5, 5.30 in the morning and I would get made up as a Narn, for example. When I'd finish the morning work, we'd break, we'd go to lunch, I'd get out of that makeup, I'd get a short lunch, I'd go back into the makeup trailer and I'd do the afternoon in a completely different alien makeup. Mm. Wow. So I would play two different characters in one day's work and in a lot of episodes, I would appear three or four different times as different aliens or as myself. One of the most fun uh, episodes was this episode where Ivana is having one of those dreams where she shows up on the CNC naked as she walks around <laughs> to the front. And there's this, they're keying off this one guy watching her walk all the way through, and they picked me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> problem <laughs> she's nice to look at even when she's not naked okay uh, <laughs> of course she wasn't because uh, they only show her from the shoulders up but uh one really really nice lady to work with is i saw something on online the other day you know be anybody you want but if you can be ivanova be ivanova <laughs> yeah uh, those are my between star trek and babylon five the, the Minbari are the ones that I relate to the most with the, you know, it's like, I'll love you to death, but get in my way and I'll take you out. It, <laughs> and that was from one end or the other. But they were a dedicated, sincere, honest race. But as equally as they were loving, they would chop your head off without even winking if they thought they had to. Like in that one scene, you know, only one human has survived the Minbari warrior. He is behind me. I am in front of you. If you value your life, be somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a great, it's a great line, isn't it? Working that scene, I was there when it was done. Oh, and wow. it was moving every time she said it. Mira was so good with her dialogue. Mm. Now, I'm going to take your question one more step, if I may. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Please, Dave. As we think, what is my favorite alien race? What was my favorite? all the shows mm. it was actually was not on star trek and it was not on babylon 5 it was not alien nation it was none of these shows my favorite special effect makeup character to this day still was when i got to play frankenstein's monster wow. it, was it was a project i was working on with cassandra peterson as elvira our mistress of the night dark very very nice lady. 
Very my, cool. <laughs> my uh, co-aliens from Star Trek played Dracula in this project. And another one of my uh, co-aliens from Babylon 5 played Wolfman. Mm-hmm. Which came at my recommendation. When the uh, makeup artists that were working on this project, they approached the two of us together on Star Trek. And they asked me if I knew anybody else that uh, might fit a Wolfman look. And I knew right off because, this, first of all, this gentleman was naturally bald. So I made a <laughs> headpiece and everything else. And he was shorter and stocky. Uh, um, I've still got the not I've actually still got the original video tape that I got from the project. It's four and a half minutes long. I love showing it wherever I go. But the story behind this, why it makes it my favorite. Mm-hmm. Do you remember a black and white TV series called The Munsters? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. um, Fred Munster was played by Fred Gwynn. The stylist on this project with Elvira came from Universal Studios. She got permission to bring Fred Gwynn's original screen-worn costume out of the wardrobe vault for me to wear in this project. Ah, nice. Uh, (laughs) The big gray heavy worsted wool. I've got the pad underneath the, to make me look bulky and big. I've got the boots. It's all there. Original from the Munster series that I got to wear. That has that just tops everything to wear yeah. on history like that. Absolutely. Um, and uh, it was it was uh, you know, basically two and a half, three days, just a wonderful experience on that set, working with her and all these people. And what we were able to do, and the project actually was for um, all of the basically Six Flags over here and some other amusement parks back then were running it as a pre-show to the Halloween uh, attraction called the House of Superstition that featured Elvira. And it was like the pre-show where, you know, you walk in, you stand there, you watch this four or five minute pre-show before you actually go into the theater or into the attraction itself. And it, it really was a lot. So that's the long-winded answer to your question about my favorite aliens and the ones I don't. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. On, um, on a similar note, is there an alien race in Star Trek Babylon or, or any other show you haven't played but really wish you had? Well, yeah, in Star Trek, I always thought I've, I've played just about every major race between the original series, uh, even Next Generation for that matter, uh, and Deep Space Nine, except Romulan. As I said, I did interview for Romulan one time on Next Generation and was not picked. Uh, And all through the others, the census was just that Romulan still showed too much of the face and that I, you know, they wanna make sure they kept me anonymous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have done a Romulan uh, at live shows. My makeup has, has turned me into a Romulan during conventions. Uh, you may have heard of creation of some of these other shows that are now doing live makeup demonstrations of the main actors. Like mm-hmm. uh, a few years back over here at Creation, uh, makeup artists came in and turned uh, Casey into Damar. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think this is a whole new thing. My makeup artist and I have been doing this on me since the two, mm-hmm. since 1999, 1998, somewhere back in there. <laughs> We've been, you know, the last couple of years, we haven't had too many conventions so happening. So I've had a bit of a layoff, but uh, just about every convention that uh, I'm invited to, I suggest this as uh, as a programming part. And they all just go for it, and they find out how popular it is. Uh, one of the conventions that I did years ago on the East Coast here, uh, the first year they just had me. They had me back the next year. I suggested doing this makeup demonstration that it just really is an attraction. They put us in this small room that would maybe seat 20 people. And I don't know if you've ever been to like an entertainment center where they have these party rooms and it's mm-hmm. It's just a simple room, and then they've got all these glass windows. Mm. Right. <laughs> Three and four deep outside that glass window to see what was going on inside. They got the idea that this is really an attraction. People were complaining, we came here just to see this, and we can't even get inside or hear what they're doing. Wow. So we even tried to leave the door open so people could hear us talking. So the following year, we set it up outside in the main area. Uh, I brought in wireless microphones, speakers, and everything. And uh, by the fourth year that we did this for them, uh, we were taking up a space larger than a conference room. We'd have anywhere from 100 to 120 people in there at a time watching this go on. One time years before that, we did a a convention in uh, Missouri. And... Nobody knew we were coming. The person that booked us forgot to tell the main programming director what was going on. And so we went around literally uh, just person to person. There was probably 150 people at this convention total. Uh, And we went around. We just asked everybody, when would you like to come and see this demonstration? It's nowhere in the programming. we had other guests who were saying, well, if they book him opposite my panel, and I'm not doing my panel because nobody's going to come, um, which was a nice compliment to us, but we didn't want to do that to people. So we started suggesting, well, there's nothing on the schedule at all at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock Sunday morning, which most people don't want to get up that early after a Saturday night at the convention. Said, Absolutely. If that's when it's going to be, we'll be there. So we started at 10 o'clock. Sunday morning, and we had over 100 people show up at that hour of the morning to watch this demonstration. It's a very, very popular aspect of conventions, and we love doing it. Um, we we don't just stand up there, or I don't just sit there and makeup artist does all this stuff and people just watch. It's like a formal talk show. We have a microphone or two out in the audience. People can ask questions as we go. My makeup artist tells stories about you know, his history and some of the things that he's done. He, he loves to tell the story about somebody who challenged him. You know, I put something on me and I guarantee you I can get it off. <laughs> some guy tried to take the makeup off once, took his skin with it. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I, it, it, that's not uncommon. I mean, even people that do their own makeup for cosplays and conventions. I got a question at one at one uh, presentation years ago. They said, what do you use to take your makeup off with? 
my first question to him is, I said, what do you put it on with? Mm. <laughs> it's so difficult for you to get off. His answer was super glue. <gasps> I immediately, yeah, really thanks, Paul Mir. I got that. That's exactly what I told him. Please stop doing that right now. Go see your Make sure you haven't done any permanent damage. Uh, I said, no, please. There are medical adhesives designed for this, and you just have to use uh, there's a couple of products back then that we were just using 99% alcohol. There's uh, isopropyl myristate. There's a few different products. You can take, it comes off very easily. You don't want to put it on with super glue. If you use just spirit gum and things like that, it's not going to stay. And so we started to, in addition to the makeup demonstration, we started adding an additional program feature for them prior to the makeup demonstration we call Makeup 101, where my makeup artist goes in and he actually talks about every single product, how he uses it, the purpose, the order, and, and why you use one product over another. And it's amazing. These people start coming to him. Oh, can you make me up for the costume contest? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's a real entertaining part of what we do at conventions. Yeah. Uh, did I get off subject? Did that answer your question? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bill, I mean, we're coming up to spooky season with Halloween. It's not too far away. So when is Halloween? Do you do you go the extra mile and and put on the makeup to scare the children? Or do you very much leave the the makeup and prosthetics as part of your professional career? There has been times. It's, it's not a normal, but there was a couple of years ago, for example, about three years ago now, I was invited to a Halloween party where I don't want to have to go through the problems of the prosthetics and the glues and the removal and everything like that. So I do come up with different masks and things that I can put on. So it covers my entire face. And I, I did a real fun Halloween uh, chain mail henchman with the black drape over my face with just the eyeballs cut out. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> around trying to, who's under there? Who's that person trying to flip the <laughs> I came close to slapping one of them, but I was too polite as I was in some <laughs> Other times, um, if you look at my website, you'll see um, a character that I've done more than once in shows. Uh, it's, I just call it my silver space man. Uh, it's a mask I found many, many years ago, totally generic, um, and has little, the original little red LED lights across the forehead. And it had silver eyes in it, which I just cut enough slits in it so I could see. Uh, and I've had fun with that one in the sense that I've worn that to red carpet events. I've worn it to Halloween parties. But what's really fun about that is when I really get adventurous, I put the colored contact lenses in so it gets to be midnight or when everybody says we want to see who's underneath that when i take it off i have these big bright green eyes <laughs> usually something else painted on my face nice <laughs> i do occasionally have fun with it but a lot of times you know i it's it's fun for people to actually see me as myself Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean I can't make a really, really cranny voice and when I'm out there and I'm talking to you know what I mean? <laughs> 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 
Excellent. <laughs> and I just remembered actually another time I did my Dracula thing. It was while I was still in Chicago. And I went to a modeling and acting competition in New York. And one of the categories was TV commercial. So I fell back on this Dracula idea, wrote my own commercial for a um, body cream. <laughs> and Dracula was introducing this to the, uh, the audience on television. You know, Johnson's. I didn't say Johnson. <laughs> body cream. And basically. <laughs> and at the end of the commercial, the tagline was Dracula putting his cape up over his, as he's putting his cape up over his face, as he always did. He leans into the camera and says, now, may I see your neck? <laughs> <laughs> and I actually won first prize for that. Ah, nice. That's what let me know. I, do, I could do commercials, and that the, and that creating characters and uh, bringing them to life, you know, was a fun thing to do. One one thing I was wondering is, um, did you did you have time to be a fan of the shows that that you were in? You know, when you were in Star Trek and Babylon Five, did you were you able to sort of sit back and watch those shows and enjoy them all? Or did it did it still feel like work when you were when you were watching them? Well, I'll go back to my childhood first. Yes, I grew up. I did watch the original Star Trek when it first aired, but I never thought, even then, that I'd be working with any of these people at some time in my life. Mm. Especially when it was canceled after the second season and survived for at least a third, thanks to Lucille Ball. Mm. Uh, but after when I worked on uh, Babylon 5, for example. I have actually, to this day, still never watched every episode, including the TV movies, from beginning to end, all the way through. Um, I have found when I do watch it, I still find myself remembering exactly how we shot that particular scene, what it was like, uh, the problems we had, um, the cardboard that some of those sets were made out of, not ship's mold. <laughs> uh, some of the jokes that we pulled off on set it, I, I just have a whole different perspective of it so I get every once in a while I'm remembering things and not watching the uh, plot lines mm-hmm. even though I know yeah. pretty much what goes on I miss some of the smaller nuances uh, one of these days I still think I will do it I will get to that point where I can just sit down and focus and watch it beginning I have the whole series obviously from beginning to end uh, same thing with Deep Space Nine. I have watched certain episodes that I was in when it first aired. Just I wanted to see how much of me stayed in, how much got cut. Uh, but if I didn't work on an episode, I really didn't watch it. I still want to sit down someday and like everybody else, I want to binge. I want to watch from episode one all the way through so I can see the whole storyline that I was a part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, still to this day, I watch a lot of Next Generation because I was not a part of that show. Yeah. But there's a lot of people I've worked with or appeared at conventions with since then. Um, and uh, I don't even think Gates McFadden, for example, knows that I grew up six miles from her in Ohio. <laughs> I didn't about that from her until I think third or fourth season. And uh, I've seen her once at a convention at creation show that I was at. 
and didn't even have a chance to talk to her long enough to really introduce myself. So uh, I could tell her that we were neighbors. <laughs> but on the other hand, I, you know, uh, there are people like Tim Russ, Garrett Wong, and those from Voyager. Uh, when I worked on that show, Jerry Ryan, um, that know me whenever we're around. Uh, Walter Koenig, whenever we're around, knows who I am because not only was the Star Trek convention our connection, but we also had the Babylon Five connection as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic. That that was going to be one of my other questions. Actually, did did you have much of a chance to sort of interact with the with the main cast? Um, but but you you sort of answered that, I think. Well, on Babylon Five, I had a lot of interaction with the main cast, uh, and a lot of the main cast recognized me as well as the directors, assistant directors, and everybody else, in the sense that. Uh, in one of the TV movies, you know, on the DVD, they always have a special feature where you can watch the movie and hear two or three of the people commentating on the movie all the way through. And they mentioned me once or twice, even specifically when they see a particular background alien. And they say, well, that's Bill. He made such a good alien. It didn't matter what. He was always good at it or something like that. <laughs> uh, oh, nice. And it's it is fun, you know, like when I'm out with, I'm, I go out and listen to Tim Russ's band play. I go out and listen to Casey Biggs play whenever I'm around uh, at the conventions where I can talk to the different people. Uh, the main cast, most people don't realize, do recognize the importance of those that play all these different characters, whether it's aliens or uh, regular cast members like Tracy uh, on Next Generation. Um, who was always there on the bridge, almost always, appeared as Captain Picard's date almost in one of these other episodes. Um, Tracy was so good at her job. I mean, she never brought the focus to herself, but she was all there, always there to help complete a scene as necessary. And the main characters recognize this in us, in what we do. And not just on Star Trek and Babylon 5, uh, but other shows I've worked on as well as a regular. Uh, but the difference between Babylon 5 and Star Trek as far as interpersonal relationships is the size of the production. Star Trek, Paramount Lot, three stages with a fourth swing stage that we use that were spread out across the Paramount Lot. Makeup departments were here and there, hair was somewhere else. Uh, so when it came time for lunch, you know, everybody just went their own way. On Babylon 5, smaller production. We were just in a warehouse that was large enough that we could make two phone stages inside that warehouse that we used. On Paramount at the big studio lots, you've got uh, rafters and ceilings that are 25, 35, as much as 40 feet high above your sets. So you can do large things. On Babylon 5, our ceilings were no more than 25 feet above us. I mean, you could get, you could use a tall ladder to hang a light. You didn't have to have a big lift or something like that. Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, yeah, we had, the cameras had to make sure they didn't shoot off the set. They're shooting too large. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when it came to lunch, you know, the makeup trailers, the wardrobe trailers, uh, production trailers were all in the back parking lot, right along with our lunch 
in, in our big tent where we all ate lunch every day. So it wasn't like everybody spread out at lunch. It was like a big family dinner every mm-hmm. mealtime. So you did get to know people like when on Babylon 5, one of my most memorable lunch periods. I've had several, but one of my more memorable ones, uh, our guest stars were Penn and Teller. Uh, yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, Zudi and... Uh, Oh, Rebo and Zuti, yeah. yeah. And they sat right across from me at the, at the lunch table. We had some great conversations. It was then that I confirmed that, yes, Teller does talk. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. We just, we just some great stories, both with their travels and shows they've worked on. Like There have been times before that that uh, Penn had worked on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And uh, a lot of these different, you know, are during that time, I should say, in the 90s. Uh, and it's just, you don't get that opportunity when you're on set. When you're on set, it's all business. Mm-hmm. you got to focus on the matters at hand. I mean, even the, even the main actors, I don't want to interfere with them. They're sitting in their chairs. They're off to the side. They've gone to their trailer because they're focusing on the next scene they've got coming up. They've got more responsibilities. I have my own. A lot of times, I would sit off on the side. I would know what's going on, and while I'm not a care, I'm not a uh, method actor by any means, but I do sit off to the side and I think about what scenes we're in, what's going to be going on, uh, you know. And in this particular case, a lot of people ask me, "How do you switch?" It's like I mentioned on Babylon Five, I could be a Narn in the morning and a Mibari in the afternoon. How do I switch personalities to make that character believable in any scene I might be a part of? Um, on Deep Space Nine, uh, the one day, you know, I may be the Jemadar or the Klingon, and the next day, I'm a Cardassian. You know, and how do I switch? And it's that's where I have to have my moments. I have to remember where I'm at. One morning, I came out of the makeup room. I walked past a mirror and did a double take. I didn't remember it was me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was thinking, um, if the, so you've been in Deep Space Nine, Voyager and Enterprise on the Star Trek shows. Um, which one of those would you say was your favorite? Of the Star Trek shows? Yeah. Or all shows? Um, of the Star Trek shows, I think. The three. Star Trek shows, Deep Space Nine yeah. was my favorite. I was the most involved. I had the best rapport with uh, all the cast members and the, and the assistant directors and the directors. When you're on a show, the more you're on a show, I believe, you know, the more connections you have, the more personal it gets. Um, For example, I had uh, a really good relationship with one of the assistant directors that nobody else seemed to be able to get along with. Um, On the other hand, there were actors that couldn't stand me. It's just the way it goes. Any job in any business, you're going to have these. And, uh, but it doesn't take away from the joy and the project and the process of what you have created. Yeah, a lot of it's, you know, we know it's make-believe, but it's only make-believe for now. You look at Star Trek in the original series, a lot of what we're using now was make-believe back then. Mm. Yeah. We graduated. I mean, we've gone past that. If you remember early on the original series, they had they were just using the little three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk-type things to mm. stick into the computer. We've already surpassed that. We're into the CDs. We're in all this other stuff. You know, totally digital. 
back then, you know, they were just, they were still just using all these, you know, blinky lights. <laughs> and now we have, you know, LEDs and everything else. That, so what feels like maple leaf now, I, you just you enjoy the fact that, hey, someday this, if you can think it, you can make it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, Deep Space Nine definitely from Star Trek, uh, I associate the best with. Mm-hmm. Um, I did enjoy the cast that I worked with, uh, Roxanne Dawson and Kate and uh, Garrett specifically and uh, Neelix. I always thought Neelix in makeup, so I keep thinking of him as Neelix. Uh, <laughs> very, very wonderful people to work with. Yeah. Or the ones I had the most interaction with. Uh, it was fun to watch how the actors became directors on yeah. some of them. Mm-hmm. Like seeing how um, Captain Cisco directs. Um, and personality that he brings to the set of himself not just cisco uh lavar burton as a director or michael dorn the energies that they changed to as a director from being the actor uh, and to that being said i have a great respect and i feel a lot of times that some of your greatest actors make your best directors and i'll, I'll go right to ron howard for that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was you know, somebody in this business from his childhood and grew up through the whole business, and he knows in front and behind the camera so well. Makes him an absolutely wonderful director. Um, ben Affleck has had a chance to do that. Penny Marshall, another one, whose whose brother, I mean, uh, Gary, and everything. I mean, they were such a family of actors and, and came directors. It was a wonderful thing to see. It. And I could relate to that when I saw it happen on both Babylon 5 and. Mm. Um, one, one thing I was wondering is, did, did you uh, get much opportunity to get involved in any sort of action scenes? So I know particularly in Babylon 5, in, so in the later seasons, the, the Narn joined the security force on Babylon 5, didn't they? And the, there were quite a few sort of crowd scenes with the... Uh, uh, with the Nana, I was, I was wondering if you, you know, if you got to do any fighting or. <laughs> I guess the simple answer to that is: Do you remember the scene in Babylon Five where Malari, where Malari is holographed into this cave, and we have Narun right there in front, of, or Reba right there in front of us? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm in on that melee. You're one of the oh, fantastic. It's fun. It's gonna look like we're beating the living daylights out of out of him and in fact you know nobody gets hurt (laughs) i was not part of the official stunt team on babylon 5 but uh sometimes especially like you mentioned with the crowd scenes and everything they still have to have the people on the perimeter that keep others safe in -hmm. case something gets thrown away or whatever uh and i was made part of that and then there were not so many stunt scenes but one time in down below on babylon 5 uh, I'm an alien after a barroom brawl who's draped up over the bar. And I'm just laying there throughout this whole, uh, every single cut, every single take, I don't, I just didn't move. I mean, that was it. I was there. <laughs> and all of a sudden I realized the room was quiet and empty. <laughs> <laughs> Get up. 
I remember they just must have thought I was a dummy that they'd thrown over the bar or something. <laughs> so there's some there's some amusing times too when when you get involved with things like this. That uh, again, if you're doing your job right, you just kind of blend in and people don't know you're there. Mm. And so yeah. yeah, but it was fun. I you know gotten to do a few small stunts here and there. You know some of the barroom fights, uh, smaller projects that. Uh, actually, uh, one specific, uh, are you familiar with the internet series, Star Trek New Voyages Phase 2? I have watched yes. it, yeah. Yes. Together up in upstate New York, which is now turned into Star Trek, uh, the original series tour, mm. um, where they have a, an event there every year now. Well, I was privileged to be part of a two-part uh, movie episode directed and written by David Gerald called Blood and Fire, that Denise Crosby was the other special guest star along with me. And I got to be, I was literally part of the stunt team for when Kirk has to knock me out, basically. <laughs> so get out of, the old Kirk saying, get out of my chair kind of thing. And uh, we had to teach James how to throw a proper punch so it would look good on camera, even though it feels awkward. He did a great job with it, and um, I went to the floor. We had it padded up. Uh, Leslie Hoffman, a longtime stunt uh, person on Star Trek and other shows, dating clear back to, I believe, um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Great lady. Uh, she was the stunt coordinator. I became her assistant in that scene, and it sold really, really well. I mean, we made it, made it look good. Mm -hmm. Just a small production. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's fun to get in on some of that action. Uh, I mentioned uh, a movie I worked on, uh, Demolition Man, which I was part of the, a minor stunt team. First time ever having the squibs put on me where I get shot up. But I didn't film on camera, fortunately. Unfortunately, oh. it didn't get to the final oh. cut, but uh. I still I got to experience it. Uh, but there was another movie called The Last Boy Scout with Bruce mm -hmm. Willis mm. Wayne's, and there's a scene that I got called in for we had to do insert shots of the top of the scene during the fight and everything before the bad guy falls into the helicopter uh, turbines mm. and I was used as the stunt guy in the insert shots so where the knife goes into the knee and I get pushed back against the, the scaffolding and everything else. And so if you were to look at those scenes meticulously with stop action, you'd see it go from the real guy to me back to the real guy to me. <laughs> <laughs> it was all about continuity. Things that they could not do, obviously, up high at the Coliseum where they shot this. Mm -hmm has to be done on the ground in a studio and dark to make it look like it's still at the top of the scaffolding. And that's where I learned um, a lot to make sure that they put padding against those hard rails of the scaffold. <laughs> <laughs> Into it, I said, can we put something back here so it's not quite so hard on my back? <laughs> we'll put something up under your shirt, too. <laughs> so. And uh, a simple stunt that I did once, it was considered a stunt, but uh, 
was more special effects. Um, there was a TV show called The Invisible Man. And I got called by the director himself. They needed this character who was killed and in a casket. And the invisible man who you don't see reaches and sits this guy up to steal his Rolex watch. <laughs> and he brings a dead guy up, you know, and still look dead. And the producer thought, well, we just get the scaffold and we get a lot of wires and we, we just raise him up. And the director said, no, I know this guy that can do this without all that. So he called me. I said, give me a little, about six hours later. I called him back, told him exactly how I could do it. And we did it. And the producers came up and said, boy, did you save us so much money? I hear you're his go-to guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, heard the phrase on the job training, working on Babylon 5 and working with the stunt people and everything. I pick up on some of these things and I get to use them. I'm not part of a stunt team. But it's fun getting to do it and, and, and creating. It's not just playing the character, but enabling the character in some areas like this. Literally, you know, how, did, how does a guy sit up in a casket and still look dead? Mm. <laughs> Tell us how. <laughs> how did you do I, it? I asking earlier, if I could do that at a Halloween party, it would be great. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Is it addictive? I mean, from that first from that first role you had where you put on prosthetics and you talk you talk to your own about, you know, dressing putting on your own Mr. Spock makeup and working on the spirit gum and stuff, is once you start doing roles involving prosthetics, is it something that you just get more and more into? I don't know, I would call it addictive. But hmm. I think it's anything you enjoy. And you feel like you're good at it, yeah. You want to do it more and more. Uh, but at, after a certain period of time, there were, you know, after four or five days a week, I know Michael Dorn. You know, there were times where it's like they would do as minimal makeup on him if they weren't doing close-ups. They wouldn't go the whole nine yards with him uh, on a particular day. There was one day on Babylon Five they needed one more Minbari for a shot, and I just happened to be there working off camera that day. And they said, well, we got Bill here. So it's like 45 minutes. Okay, fine. We went into the makeup trailer during the lighting setup. And in 45 minutes, which is normally an hour and a half to two hours, I got into makeup, into costume, was back on set, ready to go. But I was only going to be 20 feet away from camera. So we didn't have to get all the edges perfect. We, mm-hmm. as we, You might have heard the phrase, we just slapped it on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it works. And that part's fun too. I mean, there's one thing about the industry is you go, somebody that goes to an office, they sit at the same desk, same phone, you know, run numbers every day, same sales pitch, whatever it might be. Mm. I'm fortunate to have a type of industry and a career where every day was different. A lot of it was the same, but the dialogue would be different. The sets would be different. You know, the storyline changed. That just in itself is so enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It's like just watching mm-hmm. another life evolve. All right. Does it? Um, yeah. Does anyone have any more? Uh, I any know, more questions? Just giving you more than you ever thought you'd hear. <laughs> yeah, wow. You've given you me this has been brilliant. <laughs> give you a couple of months. Think some more questions. Come up with more ideas, and we'll do this again. What do you say? 
Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. We'd love brilliant. that. Thank you. Be brilliant. I mean, it's 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 amazing to you know to get this opportunity. You know, to get an hour, hour and a half with with somebody to talk about these these kind of well, things. I hope, I hope as the conventions come around, maybe people like uh, Destination Star Trek and some other showmasters things over there. And I'd love. I haven't been to the UK for a convention now, and probably close to 15 years mm. and i would love to get back over there a lot of fans that i still stay in touch with i i've met you folks now and it would be great to interact in person and uh if anybody is uh listening in you know i would adore and welcome any invitation to come to the uk uh for an event uh one two three days i don't care uh, I love meeting the fans. That's the most important part to me. And I guarantee you, I won't cost as much as some of those main cast members. <laughs> <laughs> no, that'd be brilliant. I mean, I know that I think I speak for all of us when we say we're all, we all love you know, Star Trek and Babylon 5, but we also really love the, like the lesser known story, the lesser known elements of those shows, like what goes into the makeup and the, and the background actors and stuff like that and the prosthetics. So this has been a wonderful conversation. You're welcome. I mean, it's, it really is. A, you see the final, you know, you see the final product on your screen. And a lot of people don't realize literally sometimes the hundreds of people that it takes behind the scenes, the planning. And uh, it's not just the writing, but, you know, the design of wardrobe, the design of the sets, everything being coordinated uh, at the right time to the proper degree to get the product that you finally see. And I, I'm just been very happy to be a part of that. And I'm glad I can share some of those behind the scenes aspects uh, that you don't necessarily hear about. Uh, everybody focuses on sometimes with the main characters and uh, what it's like for them and the storylines where I get the chance to talk about, you know, what it's like to make those storylines happen or, uh, Coming across and just, you know, describing, you know, the different aspects that I get to observe because I'm not focused on just this one character, and what, it, what it comes down to. But don't get me wrong, you know, all the main characters have some great stories. I've, I've been to some of their panels and I listen to them when I'm at conventions um, and they are all so on top of it and so creative and uh, deserve every aspect and every accolade that they've all received. Uh, so I've, I had one question that I was uh, saving for the end. So uh, one of our most popular episodes uh, was called Fight. And it's essentially we paired up various characters across Star Trek to see who would win in a fight. Um, we, we even took that to a convention, did that on the stage. But you're in a very unique position that you've literally been on on episodes with Cisco, Janeway and Archer. So my question really is, who would win in a fight between Captain Cisco, Janeway or Archer? No weapons? No weapons. No weapon? No. I still have to say it'd be Cisco. <laughs> Excellent. That was the answer <laughs> I was going to go for. It's based on the level of character where he comes from. Janeway, you know, again, you know, she's ready to pull a phaser out at any moment, but she said no weapons. 
Okay, of course, Archer Ghost comes from a time, uh, an earlier time where uh, attitude was different. You know, uh, just for example, him getting in the one of the episodes of Enterprise, the first episode I worked on that, where he's still getting used to having a Vulcan around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The scene, um, I can't think of the name of the episode right now, but it was literally episode seven on Enterprise, uh, where they first meet the Andorians. And he and T'Pol are, are in this room with these other Vul- Vulcan monks. And uh, Shadows of Gem, is it? Is that Andorian incident. Andorian Sorry. And, uh, as soon as I said Andorian, I started remembering the title. <laughs> there's, there's Archer and Paul having a conversation, and this one Vulcan looks up and stares at them. And Archer just turns towards that Vulcan and says, Problem? Vulcan <laughs> <laughs> just kind of turns and slides back into meditation. That Vulcan was me. Oh, nice. In the episode, it's very interesting. Uh, where the show opens, I actually appear like I'm in two places at one time between uh, a meditation to lighting a candle back to something else. And then in, I think it was in Voyager. Uh, was it still Enterprise? I think it was still Enterprise. There was all these Vulcan Serenites in a couple of episodes. And during one of those episodes, a uh, graphics designer, visual, uh, came to me and needed to take a photo of me. And in one of those episodes, you remember they, in the holodeck or wherever it was, they see this entire landscape of Vulcan statues. Mm. Those are all me from that photo. <laughs> Whoa! Took my photo, made all these granite-looking statues, and lined them up in that graphic for that scene. These are the little things that I get pulled off to the side while I'm doing the show. They say, "Hey, wait a minute, come here. We need to do something." And uh, really? same thing on a lot of other. This is good merchandise. <laughs> we need a hand here. We need a foot there. Uh, whatever it turns out to be. I did catch. I did catch a director one time. Uh, I was working on the movie. Um, Oh, sneakers with Robert Redford. Ah. And there was a scene they needed a hand double for Robert typing on a keyboard. This was back early in computer days in the 90s. And uh, they came to me and said, can you, we want to use you as a hand double for, uh, for Robert Redford on these, on this computer keyboard. I said, great, but doesn't he have red hair on the back of his hands? Mine's dark brown and black. And they looked at us and said, Oh, good catch. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's a teamwork. It's a teamwork. Not everybody knows everything. Even even the people that are being paid the most money can miss a small oversight like that. And it's just like with me, you know, I have to pay attention that I'm, you know, on different takes, I'm repeating my actions. And somebody will catch me and say, nope, you look, you pick that up with your other hand on that, on that shot. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Everybody works together. Everybody has a mutual respect for each other. And when you have that, and it starts from the top, it starts from the studio executives all the way down. And that's when you get your best projects. So thanks for having me.
No, thank you very much. Thank you so much for for being so generous with your time. And and enjoy the rest of your weekend. And uh, let all everybody know how they can reach me and and make sure the conventions know that, you know, I I don't want to say I'm easy, but I can be had. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean... You can come over to a convention in the UK, and we can we can meet you. That would be that would be amazing. Yes. We can do this. Again. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Yeah. Thank you, you as well. You too. You too, man. So that was our interview with Bill Blair, who, absolute gentleman that he was, gave us a huge amount of time and so many awesome stories there, um, mm. and is keen to come back and tell us more stories. So I'm, we're yes. all pretty excited about that, I think. Yes, that's yeah, another episode in our, in our to-do is it, list. Is it okay yes. that it might be like a Demolition Man-heavy <laughs> episode, though? Because. Is that- are we going to have to start a new <laughs> podcast? <laughs> I, I would um, happily start like a Demolition Man podcast. I mean, it, I'm not sure how many episodes it would run for, but <laughs> but I would love to hear more about um, Bill's um, time on Demolition Man. I, I, I think we could at least what get is the deal with the three seashells? What's the deal with the three seashells? That's what I want to know. Does Bill know that secret? Because does anyone know the seashells thing in Demolition Man and how that's how you go to the toilet? Because I. It's, it's it's like a it's a real mystery to me. <laughs> I I don't remember this. For, I, it's a long time since I watched Demolition Man. I don't know this, this, the three. It's, a, it's like a running toilets. joke in Demolition Man that that mm. everybody knows how to go to the toilet using three seashells, and Sylvester yeah. Stallone doesn't. He's like, what's with the three seashells? You never guess the answer. Yeah, it's a replacement for toilet paper. Oh, I see. So you don't have toilet paper in the future. You just have three, three seashells. seashells. Okay. Yeah. Ah, I'm I'm trying um, to work it out now. <laughs> oh, as, as, as so many of us have over the years. Um, but yes. Um, anyway, seashells aside. It's, uh, Bill was extremely gracious at giving us his time and uh, absolutely wonderful career the man's had. His. Mm website he did mention alienactor.com uh well worth a look there's good there's some awesome stuff on there um absolutely we will definitely love to have him back he you, you can find his twitter it's bill blair for real real being r-e-l-l no it isn't r-e-l yeah bill blair number four real as in a film reel, because he's an actor who's been in films. Oh, I'm going to put it in the show notes <laughs> because I have, I have I have not done my best explanation. Work. What's going on? I think sadly you have done your best explanation. <laughs> you hit Talking the is hard. <laughs> That's why we do a podcast. Yes. Yeah. Might eventually get good at it. Um, Okay, so that was pretty fantastic time. I hope everyone enjoys listening to Bill and his stories. Um, we will see you again for the next episode of Ten Backward. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Do you realise how Bye-bye. incredible this is? It's tradition. You ever noticed her bum? What? Her bum. Oh no! I will say. I will say. Fewer things. Fewer things. Okay. Enough of this self-indulgence. 
Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, our website is www.loweredexradio.co.uk. You can reach us on the Twitters at at 10 backward, 10 being the number and backward being the word backward. We're also on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash 10 backward podcast. You can also email us at crew at loweredexradio.co.uk. On a personal, individual level, my Twitter is at Will Turland. Rick Everson's Twitter is at TrekFanRick. And Rick Palmer's Twitter is at Mr. Imhotep. Hi, thank you again for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you might consider supporting us. We have now have a Patreon uh, where people can uh, pledge small amounts to fund uh, ongoing projects like... Uh, keeping our website up to date, uh, um, new audio equipment as we're going along, and potentially uh, opportunities to expand our content. Uh, you can go look at this at patreon.com forward slash loweredexradio. Uh, if you don't feel you can donate but would still like to support us, we would love it if you could subscribe to us or however get your podcasts through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or we're on various third-party apps. And if you could leave us a review on any of those, that would be fantastic and would be very appreciative. Thanks again for listening, and please tune in for more podcasts from the 10 Backward Crew. Let's make sure history never forgets the name. 10 Backward? Laddie, don't you think you should rephrase that? 10 Backward. 10 Backward.